It is indeed a, a joy and a privilege to be back here at Calvin College to proclaim the word of the Lord, to listen to the voice of God together. I would have you to know that over at Maple Avenue Ministries in Holland, Michigan, we too have been singing in context. That's what we called our 10-week series on the Psalms. I've had the privilege week after week to journey with you in some ways as we have considered the Psalms in their historical context, particularly in the life of King David. And so it is with that same privilege that I come before you today to consider these two texts of scripture before us. If only. If only. I bet some of you, even now as we sit here, have trapped in your gut this echoing, if only. If only I had started studying for the GRE earlier. If only I had saved a little bit more money for Christmas vacation. If only I had prepared myself for my senior year and what lies ahead. If only, if only, if only. It is our constant companion echoing from the depths of a soul of regret, not necessarily guilt, it's not necessarily true that you didn't study at all, looking at those flashcards for like five minutes counts, (laughs) somebody say amen, I'm taking the GRE, I understand, I understand, but it's not not that you're guilty of not putting forth any effort, it's just that in your soul you have this if only because you know that if you had a, maybe applied yourself, if you had a, maybe thought a little sooner, thought a little more, taken some things more seriously, you may be in a different position right now, but today you find yourself with regret lodged in your rib cage as though you are holding your breath. Waiting to exhale. If only. Some call it Monday morning quarterbacking. You are probably too young to have heard that term because you were born into a context when Monday night football is the craze. So we should really change the term to Tuesday morning quarterbacking after Monday night football, which simply means it's a phrase that just describes what we do after the fact. Who can't call the calls? Who can't make the play? The day after the play has already been played. Monday morning quarterback. And it seems very, very appropriate for us today as we talk about a thing called regret. And place it in the context of Monday morning quarterbacking when we as a community, when we as brothers and sisters pause in solidarity with our brothers and sisters at Pennsylvania State University. Oh, nobody wants to talk about it in church. But we can't help but to realize that this is a reality before us when we talk about the matter of regret. I'm sure if we were to peruse the streets of State College, Pennsylvania, we would see, we would hear, we would notice a resounding echo from the soul of that community of regret for one thing or for perhaps another. But mostly regret because a coach, a beloved mentor, 
a winner amongst winners. If you look up winner in the dictionary, if you still have dictionaries, you'll see a picture of Coach Joe Paterno. Winner. Champion. Released from his position, the one he gave his life for. Not because necessarily his own guilt, not necessarily because of what he did, because in fact there was someone else who did it, but in some ways because of that which he might be regretful of. Somehow it seems that community stands in grief and in shock because their beloved leader failed to exhale. Heard the information, heard the information, heard the information, and yet took it in, shared it like a whisper, but did not throw a flag on the play, did not scream out of bounds if we were on the football field. Somebody would have screamed, foul play. Now, you don't say foul playing football. Somebody would have said out of bounds, amen? (laughs) Got my little sports analogies kind of mixed up there. And so now, it seems that this failure to exhale, this, this, this air, this, this information that has lodged itself in his ribcage has now communicated itself to a community of young victims that there is no help for you in God. There's no help for you. I mean, look at you and look at your perpetrator. There's no help for you. In God. I mean, I mean, look at the system over here and look at your history. Look at your family connections. Look at who you are. Look at your at risk and your fatherless and your parentless. And there's no help for you. And even if someone walks in and happens to catch this act with their own very eyes and reports it to someone else just above a whisper and doesn't throw a flag on the play, there's no help. For you, many, many are your foes. Many are they who rise against you. Many they are who, who say of your soul, there's no help for you in God. And so this community and these young victims Stand on the brink of their own reality, waiting to exhale. Like our beloved King David. The last time we saw David, the last time David had the ability to take one strong, fresh, deep breath and expel it from his lungs, he was on his face before Nathan in tears. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercy. Do you remember David as he inhales and exhales because of the sin and because of transgression that has been brought to him by the prophet, creating me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And then David rises from that prostrate place before before Nathan and before God. 
And as soon as he stands flat-footed on this, on this, in his face, he realizes the truth that there are consequences for his action. And regret begins to take his home in his heart. As the prophet says to him, Dave, the sword will never be removed from your house. And he inhales. And your wives, they will be taken away by strangers. And what you did was done in the dark, but what will happen to them will be done in the light. And he inhales. And your child, the child of this adulterous union will not live, but will die in hell. Lodge yourself in that place called Regret and David is unable to deal with, unable to grapple with the regret in his own soul. He doesn't have time to even think about exhaling before he receives word from the upper chamber that his daughter Tamar has been violated by her own brother Amnon. He hears the news and is reminded of his own regret, reminded of his own deeds, and is unable, is paralyzed, takes it in, opens his mouth. But nothing comes out. No judgment. No punishment. No reprimand. No fatherly advice. No consoling of his daughter. Nothing comes out. And David is still waiting to exhale in our text today. Many are his foes, among them the Philistines and the Ammonites, and now his own son Absalom, who is absolutely outraged because he has failed to deal with the issue with Tamar in a way that is fitting a king or a father. Many are my foes, he declares. Many are they. Many are they who rise against me. Many are they who say that there is no help. For me, he's just an adulterer. He's just a liar. He's just power, power hungry. He, he, he has no hope in him. Not even God can. No, no, not even God will help him. And with his belly distended and his face red and almost turning blue from holding his breath, he runs into a man named Shammai who begins to cuss him out. Who knew that people were cussing people out in the Bible days? My teenagers were so happy to hear that today, they didn't know what to do. They said, it's in the Bible. I said, watch it now. <laughs> I mean, Shammai, he is worked up. He is upset. And I have to admit to you that Brother Shammai, he doesn't all have all his facts all together. I encourage you to continue to read on in 2 Samuel. And you realize that Shammai is upset because he believes that David is responsible for the death of some of Saul's children that David is really not responsible for. He, he's upset because he believes that, that David is responsible for the death of, of, of Ishmael and, and, and Abner. And David's really not really responsible for their death. He has misinformation. But whatever it is, Shammai in this humble and, 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 and meek state as a member of the household of Saul who has never really accepted David as king, he determines that he's not afraid to speak truth to power. He's not afraid to confront and to make known that, the, that a wrong has been committed. And so he rises up, taking in his hand rocks and dust and screaming four-letter words and F-bombs all over the place. Murderer, murderer, scoundrel, get out of here. 
You are a bloody man. You know, there's nothing worse to call a Jewish boy than bloody. You are a bloody man because of what you have done. And David, with his soldiers to the right of him and to the left of him, receives the word of this humble servant. And recognizes that, hey, my own son, Absalom, is trying to kill me. How much more should this man want to kill me as well? For many are my foes. Many are they who rise against me. Many are they who say, there's no help for me. And so his, his right-hand man rises up and says, does he know who he's talking to? Does he realize that he's talking to a king? We will not stand by and allow him to talk to you like that. Shall I cut off his head? And David says, wait, what does that have to do with you? It seems that the, the words and the action and the, and the, and the boldness and the judgment of, of Shammai has been transformed in the soul of David. Then God has used it as a chisel to break up the impacted breath of regret, reminding him of his inactivity, reminding him of his refusal to deal justly, reminding him of his abuse of power, reminding him of his failure to throw a flag, to scream out of bounds. God is using Shammai, but they said there was no help for me in God. And yet Shammai, the one who seems to be my worst enemy, yet Shammai, the one who curses me out and throws rocks at me and doesn't even really have all this information altogether accurate, Shammai is a vessel used by God to help break up the regret in David's soul so that he and his companions Continue on their way. And as they do, the scripture says they arrived there. And they were refreshed. Now I know when we just look at that word refresh, we just think that that means that they probably splashed some water on their face. We might think that it simply means that they just picked up a glass and took a cold drink. And we might think that it simply means that they took a wade in the water like the song suggests. But no, if we were to take our eyes and look closer into the depths, into the soul, into the core of this word refresh, we would see something that sounds like Psalm 23 when David says that the shepherd leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. That word refresh comes from the same word as soul. It's a deep longing, terrific. So the movement, this is the same refreshment that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 about when he said you can drink that water if you want to, but I have water. And if you partake of it, you will be refreshed of your regret. You will be refreshed of your guilt. You will be refreshed from your shame. You shall never thirst again. And it shall be unto you like a fountain of living water. And David, in his refreshment, finally is able to exhale. 
and the church. The church of Jesus Christ is waiting to exhale. She is waiting with her own sex abuse scandals, with her own fights over gender orientation. She's waiting to exhale. With her own children, pawed and abused, sold away into an industry that uses them for sexual favors, locked away in foster homes that hold them far away from the baptismal promises that we make to those who are part of our family. And the church is waiting to exhale as untapped resources around our own seminary, around our own colleges, around our own churches, around our own communities, there are untapped resources and people who we would rather do for than do with. She's waiting to exhale as moral upstanding people put on their ties and their starched shirts and walk into beautiful cathedrals and chapels to hear the word of the Lord, to participate in worship and walk out of the same doors and won't mentor, won't disciple, won't put their arms around anybody who doesn't look like them or share the same blood they have. But the the church is waiting to exhale. And so, beloved of God, is there a Shammai among us? Is there someone who is maybe not so poised and not so tactful? Anybody who may not be so much concerned about process and procedure, is there a Shammai in the house who wouldn't mind throwing rocks at our stained glasses and our perfect liturgy who who, who wouldn't mind cursing somebody out on behalf of our children who don't know Jesus loves me this I know is there a Shammai a person a a male a a female a, a child of God who's less concerned about Portfolio and power and purse strings and more concerned about poor and powerless and perpetually profiled. Is there a Shammai in the house with enough conviction and enough passion to call forth the kingdom of God? Oh, he, she doesn't have to have all the facts, doesn't have to fill out a request form, doesn't have to know how to raise her hand. Just let him, let her Come out among us. We need you. We need you to take that rock. You know the one you picked up just a couple of weeks ago when you were ready to go battle against Goliath? Go back to your dresser, to your sock drawer, under your bed, in your dust bunny closet. 
and grab a hold of that rock and say unto the Lord that I, that we will be a remnant to throw rocks and dust and curses that will adorn us, the bride of Christ, for the coming of the bridegroom so that the church's ancient breath will exhale with longing, with purpose, and without regret. Come, Lord Jesus. To the glory of God.